Hey, everybody, and welcome to Views on View. I'm Ben Hong, Vue.js community partner. And today on our panel, we have Elizabeth Fine, one of our awesome new panelists and Vue developer extraordinaire. Hello. And we have Ari Clark, real-time Vue expert and UX UI engineer at Liquid. Hello. And today, our guest is Chris Noring. Chris, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hey, everybody. My name is Chris. I work as a senior cloud developer advocate at Microsoft. I've been working with tons of different frameworks. I kind of see myself as a full-stack JavaScript developer. So I've been working with Vue, React, and Angular, and all sorts of spas. So. Very cool. One of the things that I find that we talk a lot about at the different conferences and the different things that I'm working on is open source software. And a lot of people have a lot of ideas around open source software, but we don't often think about the people who are building it and trying to maintain it. And I had a friend, John, who came to me. He's been a guest on JavaScript Jabber a couple of times. He came and he actually said, hey, Chuck, I wish there was a show about sustaining open source. And that really hit me where I live. And I have a few other friends who are working on projects related to this. So we all got together and we put together a show called Sustain Our Software. You can find it at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com. And it's a place where several people who are passionate about open source come together and have conversations about how it can be sustained and how it can be maintained and what we can do to help these maintainers continue to deliver us value that we build our software on. Most of the software we're building is based on open source. And so it's important to us to have that maintained and have it taken care of. Come check it out. It's been really interesting to listen to the conversations that they're having from people who are working in it all the time and just hear what they have to say about it. Once again, that's at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com. So you mentioned that you have a lot of experience with different frameworks. Can you talk a little about the various ones and like how it's been with Vue so far in comparison? Uh huh. So I started my story with Sparse, I think probably in 2015. At the time, I think everyone was moving from Knockout to AngularJS. That was the new kid on the block. So I used that for a couple of years. I think after that, it became Angular. And then I started looking at React because it's good to know something else than just one framework, right? And uh, at some point in time, I picked up Vue and I found it looked like AngularJS in a lot of ways, which is, you know, it's a very simple, approachable. I even spoke about it at a few conferences as well. And I haven't used it that much live in projects, but what I've done is to create my blog with Vue and ViewPress. So that's probably the most exposure I've had to Vue in a long time, but I'm I'm really liking it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think ViewPress is a rather new thing. So I think it's cool that most of your experience is actually with ViewPress. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you speak a little bit, sort of tell the audience, what is ViewPress and what does it mean to you? Yeah, so ViewPress is a static site generator. And the reason I kind of picked it up because I was looking at different candidates like, you know, Gatsby or ViewPress or something else. Uh, I think there's some called, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, kind of forgetting the word now. But so there are tons of diff- different static site generators. And what most people want to do is that they want to write some kind of article or some kind of piece of text and turn that from, for example, Markdown and have that become HTML files so that you can easily host that on, you know, Netlify or GitHub or wherever you want your web page to live. So the idea is for, I, I think, at least in my mind, that the person shouldn't care so much about the web technology of things. So, you know, they just author whatever piece they have, turn that into HTML, literally just copy that into whatever hosting system you have, and boom, there you go. You have something to show your audience. 
Yeah, okay, now, now I remember the other one. I was looking at something called Hugo as well. So there are a few uh, big names, a few good ones. Yeah, so uh, uh, so the main reason I was kind of interested in ViewPress was the fact that it was so simple. And also my colleague at Microsoft, Jen Looper, she had a lot of good things to say about you. So she's kind of in, in your community, and I guess she's a known name to you. Yes, she is. <laughs> uh, she's also the creator of View Vixen, for any listener who don't know that. So yeah, definitely I had a look at ViewPress at that point, and I, would, I was just starting with a markdown file running view press and boom, I got an HTML file, you know, like that. And I was in business in, I think, less than a minute. So comparing that to Gatsby, where I had to install a bunch of plugins and configure those. And, you know, I didn't even get code rendering or, you know, obviously I could get all those things by, you know, installing a bunch of plugins, doing a bunch of configs, but I'm a pretty impatient person. So I just want stuff to work. And I just want to write my markdown, save it, convert it, you know, host it. So for me, ViewPress was like, ah, you know, it was like, yes, finally, there's something that works as easy as I, I really wanted. So for me, it's hard to look anything else. It feels like ViewPress is ruining me. It seems like you've got a lot of flexibility, too, for how, how simple you're describing ViewPress is to set up. Like on your blog, you have tags, you've got a most popular section. Is that all? These are all components that you've built and open sourced? Uh, yeah, exactly. So I've created a GitHub repo to make this open source. Maybe we can uh, put the link somewhere after the show. Yep, but so, so w- what I wanted to do was to create something more because ViewPress is great, right? It's super easy to get started with, but it doesn't come with all those batteries included that you would like to have. So, But because it is view and because it has this site object, it's super easy to just you know build your own view components. And if you are a web developer, it doesn't take you long before you have an article list and a you know, tagging, whatever else you might need. So in that sense, I didn't really mind because it was a platform I really liked, View, and I could author whatever component I needed. So for me, it's like it was a great basic offering, but it was also able to give me the ability to just code and view like I'm used to. And, you know, yeah, I had the functionality I need. So what I wanted to do with this open source project was to tell everybody else who's as, as impatient as I am, if all you want is Markdown and nothing else, take my blog, you know, and, and just go at it. So hopefully they would be up and running with the blog in five minutes. So just putting all that focus into Markdown. In your GitHub repo, you've got a file where people can customize the theme as well. Mm-hmm. Style sheet. Um, yeah, I, I have to admit that that's one of the things I'm try, still trying to conquer a bit with ViewPress. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I was kind of struggling to find the proper documentation of how to do that. I, if I understand correctly from Jen, I think there is an update that the style, uh, stylus file that you're supposed to override is another one that the documentation is saying, uh, which is why I kind of got stuck on that. So what, what you can do in view, if you want to customize, if you don't do the override, is that you can eject the theme, which means that you get all those nice view and stylus files and everything else, and you can just customize whatever you need and save that. But of course, there's a drawback to that, right? Because... Next time that they update ViewPress, it might have changed the structure and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from my understanding, it's not really recommended to do. So I should really you know, get on to learning how to override pr- kind of properly and, and not be hit by that in the next major version. Right. Um, but you know, trying to be a good open source citizen, I, I, I kind of say to the ViewPress team that I'm super happy to help you with documentation if that's needed. So Funny you mentioned that because the ViewPress core team was formed recently and Jen Luper is one of the core team members. 
So I'm really about uh, to mention that you stole my thunder. Oh, I'm so sorry, Ari. <laughs> it's okay. You got to it first. <laughs> Important thing is that the audience now knows that. Yes. <laughs> we are always looking for uh, contributions. So I'm looking at the source code, actually, Chris. And so are you using ViewPress 1? I think um, it didn't get included uh, inside the package.json. I'm really not sure because what, when I started using, you know, ViewPress, I kind of used the CLI tool. Yeah. And once I started looking at documentation, I found ViewPress 2 and 1. So I wasn't sure from whatever parts I'm using, but you're probably right. If it says 1 in the package JSON, it's probably correct. Oh, no, I was saying that I don't see the ViewPress dependencies. So I think you're, it's probably using the global install. Uh-huh. So, so I was curious what you're using locally, because I think the local one is probably, we just need to add it, I think, into the package.json. Right. So I'm only using the global one. So I kind of, after a while, when I discovered that I thought I needed some other dependent libraries, which I didn't, I ended yeah. up creating a package JSON and started adding stuff. So Got it. I'm not sure what the global one is currently on. So that might be a thing. Cool. Yeah, because recently it did have a pretty big upgrade. Are you using the ViewPress blog plugin yet or not yet? No, I'm not. That sounds super interesting. <laughs> yes, uh, I agree. Yeah, so I did something similar to you. I hacked my own blog with ViewPress, but there is an official blog plugin that definitely you should take a look into. And I think more will be coming on that because even though ViewPress was originally designed for documentation, to your point, a lot of people are seeing the power of using it for blogging. And so I know that the core team is looking at basically really fleshing out that side to enable people to blog very easily. So I think you can definitely have a lot of contributions on that end. Very cool. Yeah, it's funny though, because I was uh, pairing with John Papa the other day. I don't know if you know him, but uh, he's kind of a big uh, figure in in the Anglican community at least. But he was actually using ViewPress for his... um, He has this extension for VS Code called Peacock in which you can customize the, the themes. And he was able to get the documentation up and running in, I think, probably less than half an hour. And he had the full documentation in ViewPress with, you know, no prior knowledge. So I think that speaks volume of its ease of use, especially if you've got, you know, no background of doing any kind of static site generation. So I kind of heard that the whole ViewPress setup was an army of one. I don't know whether that's true or not. And, and if that's the case, that is just one core developer. I'm super impressed by, you know, everything it has accomplished. Yeah, as far as the history... Evan built the initial beta prototype. And then there was one core team member who was basically focused on that. And then as of recent, they've opened it up to have a more expanded team to cover things like documentation, blogging, and sort of community outreach. All right. Very cool. So Chris, did you have any other open, like new open source projects you want to talk about? I saw there was something on your GitHub called View Book. Is that something you're interested in chatting about? Or should we move on to... Uh... I've actually written a lot of free books in general, so maybe I can and talk about that. So, Oh, I, okay. So that's an actual book. Well, yeah. Cause, so I don't, haven't come as far with the view book as I have with other books. So I, I can maybe talk about what I, I tend okay. to do. So anytime I, I try to learn something, this is something I discovered about myself. Every time I want to learn something, I need to write it down. And so when I was trying to learn React, I started writing everything down that I found and that ended up being a free book that I kind of published on Gitbooks. And I kind of had the same idea for Vue as well. With Vue having such excellent documentation, it, I'm not sure how much that is needed, but with React, at least I found for a period of time that there was a bit confusing landscape, right? Because it has three or four different routers and people don't know, you know what router to use when and so on. And so with Vue... 
it's an excellent base documentation, but there's always things yet that you're going to need anyway, right? Different recipes for different things and so on. So my kind of MO for learning have always been to kind of write articles a lot like I do on Dev.2, uh, but also write a, a article that actually becomes books. So I've written a free book on RxJS about React. And it's important for me that kind of most things I do are free because initially it's about me learning, but then it's about maybe it can help someone else too. So, And the idea with Vue is also to kind of write more about it. So I wouldn't say I've, I've conquered either Angular or React, but when you come to a certain basic level, when you feel like, yeah, I can do all right, I kind of feel I want to go to something else and try to you know, learn that as well as I can, write about it and, and give to the community, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting that you write books as a way to learn. And it's sort of ties into, I saw one of your talks that you gave about imposter syndrome and mm-hmm. something that I hear people struggle with a lot and that I would struggle with myself is the ability to write books and write blog articles and sort of reconciling that with imposter syndrome that basically, as you're saying in your talk, pretty much everybody has, no matter how senior you are. So is mm-hmm. that something that you deal with and something that you might have tips on other people, on how other people could deal with that? Uh, I think we all deal with it to a certain degree. So I can give an example where I kind of felt imposter syndrome. So I started writing this book about Angular at the time, and I felt like I'm supposed to be this Angular expert because I got an MVP title, and and that actually makes it even worse. (laughs) The more title people give on you, the more you feel like, I need to perform. I'm here delivering a keynote. Oh, God, do, do they actually know who I am, right? So so at that point, what I started to realize that when you do the research for a book and when you actually write it, you learn stuff in the process. So when you're writing your book, you might have 60% of the knowledge already, but then you need to deep dive into details and you kind of add the other 40% that you were missing. So my best recommendation to people trying to learn stuff is try to explain this to someone else and find an excuse to do so. And that excuse might be a meetup, it might be an article, and it might even be a book if you got, you know, abundance of time. So my best tip is to don't listen to that thing inside of your head saying that you're no good. Don't listen to other people. Just keep on at it and keep on learning and try to express that in the form that suits you because speaking doesn't suit everybody. Writing doesn't suit everybody, but I'm sure there are something, right? I know other people who learn through OSS projects uh, as well. So it's for me, writing and talking about it is what works the best. That, that's what I, I discovered. And it took me a lot of years in my IT career to realize that. It actually took me, I think, eight or nine years before I realized this is the best way I learned. So. That makes me feel better because I'm, I'm still pretty early in my career. And I'm, like, yeah, I look around at all these people writing blog articles, doing all, doing all like, you know, the outward facing things. And I'm like, uh, do I belong here? I don't know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so good to know that like, it wasn't an immediate discovery for you. No, I mean, I think some people go through their entire career and still feel like there's always someone better. But I think it's not about being the best. It's about finding a niche where you feel like I'm having fun. I'm feeling passionate about this, you know, like holding this kind of podcast or writing or whatever you do. So it's about finding people that are like you and make you feel good about yourself. I mean, you're always going to find someone who's better at coding, better at writing, better at speaking, but it's the unique combination that's you. I think that that part is important and try to 
amplify that. I totally agree. I think I started with like, for example, public speaking in what could have been 2015. I hadn't done it before that. And, you know, the first time I tried to do that, I was all sweaty, like most people, right? Sweaty palms and <laughs> super nervous and, and stuttering and God knows what else, right? But you kind of feel at some point you need to push. You need to keep on going despite the fact that your body reactions tells you to stop whatever you're doing, right? And I think it's the same thing with writing. And it, it's about being nice to yourself at the end of the day, right? To say like, it's okay. I'm not an expert at this. I mean, I bet Bruce Lee wasn't even an expert in Kung Fu when he started out, right? So yep. uh, that's, a good, yeah. that's a good perspective. And uh, it, it's funny because uh, one of my higher managers, uh, Patrick, he used to be the cloud uh, advocate leader for Docker. He said uh, when um, I think it was my manager who said, like, I have all these awesome people on my team. You know, I feel this imposter syndrome. And he was like, you know who else had an imposter syndrome? And then he started to taking this quote from this person that turned out to be Neil Armstrong because he felt like, what am I even doing here? I'm, I'm like a pilot. I'm not an engineer. I couldn't build this vessel. Yet I'm walking on the moon thanks to everybody else, right? And that kind of puts things into perspective. Even the one that is the most respected in our society and our human history feel this, this way, right? So it's, I, I think that, that says everything. And it's a feeling that we need to learn to deal with. And most of the time, just brush away, I would say. You know, it's it's stupid thing that comes on saying like, you're no good. You can't do this. And you're like, yes, I can. Look, I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah. So when getting started, Chris, did you have like, um, you know, sort of like and, uh, people who are mentoring you, sort of helping you get through that process? Or did you just like, you know, single-handedly like barrel through all these obstacles? So when I started, I thought I needed mentors. And I do think that certain people need mentors. And I probably do too, at some point with something. I thought I needed mentors. And that became a mental blocker for me to say, like, I need this mentor in architecture, for example. And if I don't find that, I'm never going to be an architect. I mean, I actually had that thought going on. But after a while, I realized that it's all about you, right? I mean, you can achieve anything you put your mind to. And I'm kind of sounding like Doc Brown, right? But you know what I mean? I think mentors are a good thing, but they shouldn't stop you from achieving if you find them, they could be a great boost, but there are also mentors who could leave you down the wrong trail. So it's very important that you know that you will not have the same mind space throughout your whole career. You will change your mind during the way. The right mentor for you, you don't really know what that is. I mean, so the one thing I did when I started out my career is to, is to say to myself that even though I might not be in the right job or doing the right thing, at least I understand what I don't like, if that makes sense. So I, I feel like I've been to a few jobs where I felt like, at least I know I don't like that. So I have been a consultant for most of my, my life, or I think you call it contractor in the US, which kind of means that you're on, in a, different places, you get to work with different technologies and even assume different roles. And I, I, think, I think that's important to learn something about yourself, you know, if, if that makes sense. It's, I think it's important to realize that Am I a good tester? Do I like UX? Do I like design? Do I like programming? Or do I like to talk to people? And I kind of found myself missing some part of this communication element when I was just a developer, if that makes sense. I mean, I really love the engineering aspect, but I have this need, at least 20% of me wants to talk to people at, at some point. <laughs> and, and, and I think it has a name. I think it's called Ambivert, if you've heard it. Yeah, the 
I have. I mean, it's it's this gradient, right? Some people are like introverts, some are extrovert, and some are seem extrovert, but they have this need to pull back sometimes. And I think it's important to acknowledge what type you are. And people are trying to categorize you as a one or a zero or black or white, right? And usually you're somewhere in between and it's about knowing yourself. And I'm, I'm super happy that this image of developers that, that we used to have are, are gone, right? You know, that developers are supposed to be this person that don't like people, that sits in the basement, that smells bad and so on. You, I mean, you've heard all those things, right? I, I don't know if that impression is gone. I think I still get that. <laughs> <laughs> but it is... Based on the inside, we know better. It is diminishing. And so to your point, though, um, as a developer advocate, I think you're in a unique position to speak to sort of like, or more like, I'm curious how you sort of got into that because most most of us who are developers, we're just building things. And so to be able to mm-hmm. land an advocate role is a unique combination of the skills that you're talking about. So do mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about sort of your journey into that? Or did you always yeah. know you were going to be a developer advocate? I mean, if you're completely honest with yourself, you can probably find traces early on, even when you were 17 or 18. You know, me liking to do presentations, I never did anything with it, right? So I got through university, got, you know, got to read engineering, programming, started being a developer. I was a, you know, full-time developer, nothing else for more than 10 years plus. And then one day I started to go to these meetups with software craftsmanship. And I finally got to learn these things with, you know, unit testing, TDD, and that kind of reshaped how I, I looked at code because I think I was one of those developers who just developed code, tested it a few times, you know, manually and say, this is ready for production, right? I didn't have a good MO in terms of delivering quality software. I didn't really understand the notion. So talking about solid principles, for example, I don't know if that's still a thing, but, you know, TDD, but, but just think about testing was important. So I showed up at this meetup. And this guy was holding X number of workshops with something called Karas, in, in which you kind of, you have this recipe that everyone's following and so on, right? And I went to that three to four times. I thought that was super fun, right? I got to pair with people, writing unit tests and so on. And, and then he just moved to Spain. And I'm like, okay, what happens now? My fun extracurricular activity is just gone or, you know? So he was like, yeah, maybe you, Chris, want to take this over. And I don't think he meant anything by it. He just said, okay, someone's curious. Obviously, we need a leader, maybe you, maybe someone else. And I was like, why not? So at that point, I actually took over the group and we were like 15 people strong or something, right? And uh, simultaneously, I was doing Angular for this aviation client and I got into JavaScript because I had like a decade of being a .NET developer. So what I did at that point was to also co-organize the Angli group because now I felt like after five, six software craftsmanship meetings, I wanted to do something more because this was fun, right? And yeah, so I, I did that group and we had maybe 50 people coming and suddenly it became more and more and Meetup was this thing a few years ago. I mean, I don't think it existed like 10 years ago, but so suddenly I was the, you know organizing two different groups. I was holding talks like, I don't know, every month or something. And, and, and once you do that and come over that initial fear of, of lecturing and you start having fun, you started wanting to do it more and more and also found this organizing bit really fun. At that point, I was still just a you know, developer. I'm, I'm saying just because I don't really mean just, but I'm saying there are so many things you can do within the whole you know, sure. domain of IT, right? A few years later, I uh, I was managing, I think, four different meetup groups in Sweden, where I'm from. 
And I decided, me and the wife, that uh, wh- why not go to England, right? Because she had some family living there. So I ended up moving or we ended up moving. And I started a few meetup groups even here. And uh, I started doing it more and more. And, and suddenly I started hanging out with people who had developer advocacy as a profession. So they were working for different places like uh, Nexmo and, and other places, right? Progress being one. I think that's how I ran into Jen Hooper. So suddenly they seemed to have such an awesome time, right? They were able to be full-time engineers while talking to people, while helping community. I'm like, I can actually have it all. And, and that, that's the feeling I had, right? Because that's still what I'm doing at Microsoft. I still get to use my engineering skills and build tools. I get to talk to people. I get to enable people in the community. And it's re- I mean, if, if you really like those kind of things, it's a smorgasbord of things that you could do. So uh, I had a little stint at McKinsey, which is a management consultant. And I was kind of the technical architect role. So I got to talk to people who were not that technical, but we also got to build a few things. But, so, but uh, after McKinsey, I kind of realized that I should probably go for advocacy. I wasn't really ready before that, but I felt like, why not? Because here's the thing with advocacy. Everyone's saying like, if you become an advocate, it's not really being a real engineer. I don't know if you heard that, but a lot of people have a tendency to say that advocates aren't really that technical deep. And being one for almost a year now, I can say that I've never worked so hard with engineering as I'm currently doing. Because when you have this much free time, you spend all your time learning new stuff. You know, it, my, my, my blog posts, for example, I've written, I think, 50 blog posts in a, six months. So when you have all that free time, you get to learn so many things and you build, get to build so many coding repos. And when you have that extra time, you realize what tools you would like to have. And when you have extra time on your hands, you build the tools instead of wanting that it would exist. So for me, it's just a refocus, right? Instead of working on that same product year after year after year, adding unit tests, adding end-to-end tests, you know, talking to product teams and so on. I'm kind of free to explore everything. So for me, advocacy is freedom, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I've heard some of those stereotypes before about advocacy. And I think, especially in the past, some companies treated advocates as just like people who spoke at events all the time. So mm-hmm. if you're constantly flying and speaking, I think that's where some of the, um, you know, sort of stereotypes came about because they weren't building things, right? They weren't in touch with engineering because they were constantly speaking. But I think lately, and I think more teams have realized the fallacy of doing, like sort of approaching it that way. And mm-hmm. so I've heard, you know, different teams starting to actually give, you know, advocates that time to, to your point, the free time to learn to do things because you really do need that hybridization in order for them to c- continue to do what they do best. Mm-hmm. You know, for those who are thinking of advocacy uh, or becoming a developer advocate, it is important to consider when you're interviewing with a team to talk, to ask about those questions, right? That mm-hmm. you're not just being shipped around like, you know, like a, a speaker monkey and not mm-hmm. being... <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, anyways... Yeah, so just, you know, these are just important factors. But, you know, Chris, I'm glad you have like a great balance with that. And that's really great to hear. Yes, I mean, one important thing about my profession is, as you say, people treat advocacy different at different companies. What we do at Microsoft is to say that there are some important things. One is obviously the end user of your product. We need to be in the community. We need to understand their needs and we need to feedback that into the product teams because ultimately the only way for them to know what to change or what features to add is by hearing from real users. There are different ways of doing that, obviously, right? There are feedback buttons inside of your product, but it's also going out there in the 
community in the meetups at the conferences, wherever your users are. I mean, they could be on Reddit for, for all I care. The important thing is find them, find how they find your products and feed that back. That feedback loop is so important. If that means that you sometimes fly out to an event, fine, right? I mean, I, I have been flying quite a lot with Microsoft, but to be fair, I think I was on more meetup events before <laughs> I joined Microsoft, weirdly enough. And I think it's because when you have developer as a 100% profession, the, your only outlet of doing all the fun community stuff is usually meetups or conferences, which means that you tend to end up there, right? But when you work more strategically as a developer advocate, it becomes a different thing because then you're thinking, how can I create the most impact? Sometimes the answer is writing a blog post. Sometimes the answer is a tool. And sometimes it's an event. So if anything, we're very introspective and very reasoning in where should we put our time and energy in terms of, you know, myself, my colleagues, managers. I mean, we have to do what's best for the community. And yes, it, it does sound sometimes like we're these cocktail developers that just moved from one place to the other. But we are actually very, it's very important for us that, that we are in places where it matters to the user. Because if we're in the wrong place and we're doing it for us, we're not helping anyone but us, right? But if we go to an event where a certain type of user is, or we can get very good questions regarding our products, we should be there, right? And of course, Microsoft, Azure, I mean, that's where I work. So it makes sense for me to be one in context where people are actively using it, but also in other places where people are maybe not using the cloud and you try to understand why or why not. I mean, one of the most important things that actually made me start at Microsoft at the first place is to say, we don't sell our product ever. We have it as a answer to a question, but, you know, there are other answers. I mean, if people have a problem, uh, sometimes the answer is Amazon, sometimes it's building a VBA script, and sometimes it's Azure, and sometimes it's JavaScript, right? It's important for us that we don't push whatever solution we have. It's being like, a trusted advisor first and sell last. I think that's a very, very important thing. So if you feel like you're an advocate with a company that says, well, you should try to sell this, then you're more of an evangelist. This is an important distinction for us, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's fantastic. I never even thought of it that way. I feel so enlightened. <laughs> yeah, so, so I mean, it, it's, it's really important that, you know, we kind of keep this conversation going and kind of connect with the community. It's, I mean, after all, Yes, we're not a charity, but we're also, it's important for us that we're still staying in the community where they found us, right? Because that's the, true for most of my colleagues. They found most of us managing a meetup or, you know, being out there at, at a conference. And it's really a new kind of company that we're looking at now. It's, it's hard to realize maybe, but I was at this event in Edinburgh. And we were handing out these plush penguins where it said like Microsoft loves open source. And I had Wait, so many smiles. <laughs> I mean, they're so cute. For, for real, they're super cute. So we lost all of them in like the first four hours because everyone was like, yay, I want a penguin. And a lot of people were actively telling me, I can't believe this is Microsoft, right? Because, I mean, to be honest, it was a different company 10, 15, 20 years ago. And a lot of things have happened since. And I think a lot of these changes are, are, are for the good. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that's important for all the brands that we know today that, you know, the, there might come a time when they do change for good or, or for, the, for the bad, right? We need to be very aware of that. 
Sorry, it kind of feels like I'm holding a, a lecture, but I'm I'm really no, liking my. No, it's kind of great. I'm fascinated. <laughs> uh, I don't know so much about the panel. I would be super psyched to hear more about what you do. <laughs> I do stuff. <laughs> yeah, compared to you, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Well, I was going to ask you, Chris, about your journey with Vuex, because mm-hmm. that's something that um, I know you've been using. And I was just curious when you started using that and what made you decide that Vuex was a good solution for the project that you're using it within? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, my journey with Vuex starts with another journey, which was Redux. It kind of started in a way where we realized that all our state was kind of everywhere and no components were in agreement what the state was. So we were kind of feeling all those different problems that we wanted this, you know, single source of, of truth, if you will, right? And at that point in time, I was using, I think, React, actually. Weirdly enough, I was in a React project. So we kind of realized that Redux was a good solution at the time because state was spread out, you know, and other different pain points. So, and later on, we felt the same pain point when we were in an Angular project. And the answer at the time was called NGRX, right? In the Angular world. And then, of course, I was on a Vue project, which is why I'm here. And Vuex is a super interesting component. It's very, very lightweight, but really powerful. And, you know, it's, it's giving you that same confidence, right? You have the same ability of saying, here's all my state. And if I don't like that the state is global and everywhere, or it doesn't make sense to put in product state, user state, and all kinds of state, I can always slice it up in different stores, and which I think is really good. So it's... I kind of see this as a natural way of augmenting your view application, of making it even better. And I think it really shines when the application gets big. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think in, in the beginning, you can kind of do what you want. You build a few components, you got state here and there, but then you start to add HTTP and the application grows with you. And suddenly you're like, hmm, maybe I should start caching certain things. And maybe, just maybe, Everyone should look in the same place for the same kind of data. And there are a lot of benefits of having everything in one place, I think. And I think that's, that's why a lot of projects actually just unconsciously kind of starts with me installing the UX before I actually <laughs> realize I need it. I know you're not supposed to do that as an engineer. You, kind of, <laughs> you should reason with yourself. But I know that, you know, a few months down the line, I'm going to need it, right? So I might only start off with this one state property, but... I know that might be language, for example, right? That might be a, a global thing that I know that it needs to change everywhere on the entire application, or it might be something else that I can kind of consider global or a logged in user, for example. And that's why I think Vuex is very interesting. There are always these couple of properties that are purely global that make sense to put in the store. And then after a while, you might 
reason with yourself and say, well, these things are kind of semi-global, so it makes sense to create at least a sub-store for them. It might be users or products and kind of reaping all the different benefits of having a very predictable data flow. And, and that's kind of how I look at BOX. So you said create a sub-store. Could you talk a little bit about that mm-hmm. and how that works? Yeah, so I mean, uh, in, in VUX, you have the ability to kind of create different stores, right? Mm-hmm. And you can have this one mother store, if you will, and you can kind of reference all the other ones. I don't know if everyone ever call it the mother store, but you know I what like I mean? It. I like it. I'm yeah. going to use that Yeah, now. I might start using that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's super great that you kind of start with this one store and then you talk to yourself. And during the way, you kind of realized, well, maybe I should just split up different concerns here, right? This concerns users, it should be in a separate store. If this is products, it should be somewhere else and so on, right? You have different topics or domains that you realize belong in different stores. And at that point, it kind of makes sense to divide up your you know, components and even your uh, state. I mean, this is how we build any big application, right? We try to build these small islands that are kind of interconnected. And I, I think it just makes sense that not only components get to be grouped that way, but also the store that kind of goes along with it. But you have the ability to talk cross domains if you need to. And I think that's an important thing to say as well, that it's not just about separating because then you might have it as a local state. But if you actually need that data, it's fairly simple to set up a getter and then just you know get whatever you need. Mm-hmm. Yes, I recently have been working a lot in that particular problem space. And so when I watched your talk, basically your intro to view talk. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting that that was something you touched on in the Vuex part, because for me, like that was, it took me over a year to, to get to the part where I was like, crap, I really need to, I really need this state from two different modules. I'm terrified of what happens when I try to access both, but you, you were just like, yeah, no, you can do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you that right <laughs> off the bat. So, like, wow. Okay. That's advanced, but you made it so simple to understand your talk. I was like, I don't know why I was so scared of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, to be fair, I, I was trying to instantiate the store for the longest time, even when I was creating substores. That was one, I, I couldn't get it to work, right? I was struggling for w- longer than I would like to admit, if you say it that <laughs> way. I mean, a, a, as you know, when you define a substore, you just define a simple object literal, right? you do the mistake of trying to instantiate that, you're not getting anywhere and you don't understand why it don't work. So that, that was a little gotcha for me. But I mean, once you kind of got over that stupid, simple mistake, it's not that hard. I mean, I, I, I usually don't find the syntax of a language to be the hard part. It's the whole reasoning. When do I do things, right? When do I create a substore and when don't I? When do I do a cross-domain call? I mean, I, I think the bigger picture of, reasoning with yourself and the product team and, you know, everyone else that you're working with. I think that's, that's the harder part. I, I think software is the simple part, if, if that makes sense. But yeah, I, I mean, it, it really depends on what you're working on, right? I mean, if you're working on a Google search engine, probably people are going to tell you that, yes, software is the hard part. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's all about perspective and, and, you know, based on what you're working on. But in my experience, working with people is the difficult part, but also the fun part. Because if everything was software, we wouldn't need people, right? Yeah. Something <laughs> uh, philosophical. <laughs> I know. There was a moment of silence between all of us after you said that. We're like, ooh. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like sinking in. We're like, wow. Let me imagine on that for a moment. At least that's where I was at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
I think at the end of the day, you realize more and more how important soft skills are in, in your line of profession as a developer, as an advocate, whatever it is. I mean, it re- really like put emphasis of what it means to be a good communicator. A lot of people think that means just if you're, you're good, if you're standing on a stage, but sometimes it's about being the best supportive person you could possibly be, right? And sometimes it's about being this active person that makes sure that things happen. And, you know, there are so many facets and learning that, I think it kind of takes a lifetime. You know what I mean? Yeah. Speaking of different methods of communication, so you are a developer, you are a writer, blogger, speaker, and then I also saw that you're a painter. Is that right? Mm. Yep. (laughs) That's That's pretty cool. (laughs) So here's something really fun. Most of my colleagues I found are extremely good at painting. I, I do not know why that is with the advocacy organization. But where I work, I have so many amazing people. I don't know if you... So my ex-colleague, Sarah Dresner, she's one of the best painter sketchers I have she's ever great. seen. Yeah. I mean, John Papa, super good. Have you seen the aquarels from Jen Looper, for example? And, and I'm like, wow, you know? So I, I don't understand why artistic types have become advocates. <laughs> but I, I oh. definitely see the correlation. That is very interesting. I think advocacy is such a creative space because like you said, you know, you have to sort of seek out the solutions to problems that maybe you don't even realize are a problem. And Mm -hmm. I I feel like that just takes a very imaginative, creative person. So to me, it kind of makes sense that uh, there would be a lot of artistic types in that profession. That's Mm -hmm. just my opinion. I don't know anything. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm starting to think to myself if, you know, I I was meant to be an advocate because I I think everything we do are choices and our own mindset. I think if we decide one day we want to be another profession, I think we could be if we just, you know, do the necessary time to learn whatever that skill set is. So I I don't know. It it kind of sounds like I don't believe in faith because I do think there is such a thing, but I do also believe in our ability to just decide that I'm going to run through you know, this path and I'm going to do my best at it, right? I honestly believe that people can become whatever they, you know, set their mind on. I really believe that. I think I was listening to this uh, physicist, what was his name? You know, there's this really famous um, physicist that kind of is very good verbally. I think he's from the 70s or something. He was talking about how he was no good at physics when he started out, but he acquired all this knowledge and there's so many years, decades of learning and he became one of the best in his field. And he kind of represented everything that I think I truly believe, which is like, you might not be a great developer today, but tomorrow or, you know, next week or a few years down the line, you could be, right? Yep. Every day you get better. <laughs> yeah. At least Hopefully. that's the hope. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some days I feel like I'm You're trying. <laughs> But then when you go backwards, you learn things and then you go a little bit farther forwards the next day than you otherwise would have, hopefully. Good point. At least that's what I told myself. (laughs) I like that. Yeah, I'm reading a book, Atomic Habits, and they talk about an analogy where when you're looking at like a miner and they're striking like this large stone, right? Even though they're striking it hundreds of times, there's nothing visible happening. But then all Mm -hmm. of a sudden, the one strike, it just cracks open. You know, you don't attribute it to that last strike that cracked mm-hmm. the rock open, like the hundreds of strikes that went into it prior to that, even though there were no visible progress, were critical for the final time where it finally opened up. And so, you know, keeping those habits is definitely critical. That sounds yeah. like the story in which I learned the programming. I took the longest time at university. I have to admit that 
it's a fun story, but it re- it really resembles your stone there. So, so what happened was that I was kind of failing the first programming lessons and I was doing like a master's program and I thought I'm never going to be an engineer. I can't even pass the basic programming course. And I just realized I had the wrong mindset or there was something that made me not understand, right? So I went through the first course, barely understood what I was doing. Second course, barely understood. Third course, which was a project, I got a tiny speck of understanding. At the fourth course, I had to do this really long elaboration, right? I had this hand in piece. And after that, everything just clicked. That big stone that you talked about just cracked. And suddenly, you know, three courses worth of knowledge just rushed into my head. I just felt that moment when it happened. I felt like Neo in the Matrix, right? All that knowledge just came <laughs> rushing in. I went back in, I think in three months, I just passed those three exams. Suddenly, I just understood everything. And you know and, Kung Fu now, right? <laughs> yeah, I wish, right? <laughs> I think I attempted a round kick once, so no. <laughs> Guessing that didn't end well. <laughs> no. That, that's actually a funny story. It was the story about how I, for four months, thought I could learn Kung Fu without realizing that I was not a bendable person anymore, <laughs> if I ever was. I even had this uh, Shaolin monk trying to teach me because, for some reason, he was flown from China to Sweden, and he had like a very good story, right? His CV was fantastic. He had even been training Jet Li in the use of staff. So, I mean, in theory, I should be the next Bruce Lee. But <laughs> in that case, I think you, there's a physical limit to what you can do. Mm-hmm. You need to have the balance and the you know dexterity for it. But knowledge, different thing. <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree with that because, I mean, I'm someone who for... Longer than I should have uh, skated by on, you know, talent. (laughs) Turns out that that only gets you so far. And then the thing that gets you that that next step is just dedication. Because there are some concepts that are just so foreign to how our minds work that without time and perseverance and discipline, like it's not going to make that connection. Mm -hmm. And also like I think about some of the most brilliant people I've had the pleasure of knowing and one that really sticks out. She, things didn't necessarily come easily to her, but her perseverance made her one of the most talented engineers I've ever known because she just day in, day out worked her butt off to, to gain the knowledge. I feel like, yeah, there's a certain earning of knowledge as a developer that without some error along the way, (laughs) you don't get there. There's actually an excellent TED talk on that very topic. I don't know if you saw that. It's called Grit and the uh, Power of Passion and Perseverance. Yes. It's it's one of the most amazing talks I've ever seen. Yeah, I'm I'm leaving it here as a link in the chat. But uh, I, I fully agree. And I sometimes think that talent is a curse. Because yes. you don't learn to fight. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, if everything you do is fight, you become very good at fighting regardless of what topic you're trying to approach, right? So I think talent is a good thing, but I think someone said that it's 2% talent and 98% hard work. And I think it's realizing that it's too easy to give in to the fact that you're, you know, have a talent in something and that's what you do as a profession because then you don't know struggle and excellence, right? Yes, so true. Grit, I think, is the word. <laughs> yeah, that is. I mean, turns out be... I actually have that, and I never yeah. knew because I never had to know. <laughs> and I'm it's, so much uh, more grateful for 
the things that I've earned through grit than mm-hmm. things that just came easily. Mm-hmm. There's, there's more satisfaction in it when you yeah. really have to work for it. A hundred percent. And even the things that you do have a talent in, right? It's harder to get better at something that you have as a talent because you feel like, well, I'm kind of good enough already, right? Yep. (laughs) I think it's like with me and painting, right? I I know I'm not the best at painting. I have a decent level, but it makes it hard for me to motivate myself to seek out those courses. So I think I have this um, therapy thing where I kind of watch Bob Ross thinking, maybe I could be that level or you know what I mean? So I, I, I mean, I, I, th- I think most people realize they can't be, and and I'm like, could I if I put the hours? Probably. How many hours? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> they, they, they kind of say that you need ten thousand hours to be good at something. I don't know how much is missing. Probably nine thousand, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, surely um, that you know, accomplishing a level of knowledge through grit rather than just purely talent helps in an advocacy position as well, and helps with communicating with people. Because mm-hmm. you can communicate with people who are in the position that you once were in mm-hmm. and you're not speaking from a place where, you know, everything that you know has come so easily to you. Mm-hmm. You can better understand the level that everybody else is at. Mm-hmm. I 100% agree with that. And, and in some way, I've kind of used myself as a reference. If I don't get it, you know, how is anyone else going to get it? But so actually most blog posts are to me and <laughs> in the sense that they, they speak to me that I kind of assume that I'm the dumbest person in the room always. And that really helps when you write a blog post. It's like spell out everything, every single acronym, over explain everything. And when you realize that you're doing that, you're going to actually benefit your future self too. I don't know if you heard about this phenomenon, but people years later or even months later, they go back to their own blog post to learn from their past self. Mm. Because we as people, when we keep on cramming knowledge, we forget, right? Who mm. here remembers how to write a regular expression? Can uh, do it at the I top of her. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> so there are all these things that we forget months later, unless we use it on a daily basis, right? And going back to your past self that was nice enough to over-explain everything is perfect. So not only are you helping your future self, but you're helping others in the process. And mm-hmm. I, I think everything we do should be approached by saying that you don't know where people come from. And I think that's a very important thing if you're an advocate. You don't know where people come from. You don't know what context they have. Be as clear as, as you possibly can. And, you know, right. so that, that kind of goes through everything I do. It's, it's the mindset of a, of a beginner. And I think if you ever lose that, I think it's super hard to be a good advocate if you become too good at what you do, because then you don't realize anymore what's, what's you know, difficult. I mean, if you think about it, the very best people at what they do, they probably win the Nobel Prize, right? But people who are maybe not that good, they can still be amazing and bring a lot of value to the community, just being able to articulate, you know, whatever this topic is about. And I think, for example, if we have this excellent physics professor or math professor, whatever it is, they might actually sway you to move into that area and seek a PhD and going all the way and become super good at what you do. But if you have a really bad one, you might say, nope, this topic is not for me, right? And so I I think it's super important that we kind of realize the value in good teachers. And I I think it begins with being humble. I think it begins with saying like, I need to explain this in a way that if I, I was explaining this to a child, because if I'm unable to do that, I don't fully understand, right? It's one of those things that people keep on saying, but it, it's so true in that 
regardless of if it's a video or article, whatever it is, I think you should always approach it like, assume you, the person you're talking to is five years old and speaks Spanish and you're trying to do it in English. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Just approach it in the simplest possible way. I mean, I, I actually think I have a benefit uh, towards my colleagues that might be Americans or English speaking, right? Have it as a mother tongue. For me, I'm already kind of struggling with the fact that I wasn't born with this. So uh, my mother tongue is like Swedish, right? Which means that English is a second language to me, which means I'm using simpler words than that of my colleagues. And mm. that means I can reach a global audience in a way that they might be can't because they might use a phrase or a word that falls wrong to a person from another part of the world and they don't get it, right? So I actually think that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, very well said. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I had never thought about it that way, but yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. Yeah. I also noticed that one really awesome thing, I was just like to mention one of my colleagues, her name is Glaucia, and she speaks like English, Portuguese, and Spanish. And I just realized straight off the bat, I got English and really bad French. That's literally everything (laughs) I have the show for, right? And here I have this multilinguistic colleague who is like able to write in so many languages and quick impact all over the place. And you kind of realize that another benefit is also obviously to just learn languages because you can reach so many people. Mm. And um, yeah, I mean, that's another thing as an advocate. I mean, you can have so much more impact if you speak in more languages than English. I mean, it's easy to assume that the world speaks English, but then you show up in South America and you're like, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's not going to work. And I'm, I'm sure in the deepest heart of China, it's not going to work with English either. Right. So. Right. I actually think that's a good thing that we should strive for to just be more multilingual. But I mean, languages are hard. I mean, it's so much, so much easier to learn a programming language than to learn Mandarin, right? Sure. <laughs> I mean, it really depends on, on where you come from in the world, of course, but you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, uh, Jen Looper, uh, her first career was as a, a language professor. So I think there's something to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually think that she's probably better at learning programming languages than most of us, right? Just right, yeah. With grammar and everything else. So. Yeah. So to be a good developer advocate, I need to be multilingual and a good painter. So if I have those two things. <laughs> yeah, so it feels like I'm never going to be one. All my hopes and dreams dashed. <laughs> or have the um, tenacity at least to strive to be one. Um, yeah, I was about to say, but wait, we just talked about how grit uh, allows you to accomplish things you may not have thought possible. <laughs> so I have to work on painting and learning more languages. So life goals. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> For sure. Now, I mean, in all seriousness, I think the most important skill you have is probably being humble and realizing that you're helping people, which means that It's not about delivering maybe a software product so much anymore, but realizing you need to enable people and you need to find what problems that hurt them the most. Could I be building a tool? Could I write a piece of doc? What can I do, right? I kind of always see myself as a developer enabler, if that makes sense. I mean, or unblocking developers. I think I should have that as a quote somewhere. (laughs) So, I mean, in all seriousness, I think that's what, an advocate can do the most, just unblock other developers, whatever their problem is. It's like things got really deep, right? <laughs> yeah, they definitely did. And in your discussion points, you mentioned this line. I'm curious what you meant by it. You said, uh, you wrote, the war is over if you want it. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, what were your thoughts on this? It's very easy to kind of pigeonhole people, to say that you know you're ang- either an Angular developer, React developer, Vue developer, JavaScript developer, .NET, you know whatever language that you're doing, and especially SPASP, especially single page application, have had this reputation of almost war with them, right? To say like, yeah, you can't do all those spas and you have to think that Angular sucks and React is the only thing you can use. Or, I mean, to be fair, there are a lot of really good frameworks out there, really good libraries that can solve the same problem. I think it's about realizing that most opinions out there are subjective. You see these so many wars on Reddit or, or you know, Stack Overflow, whatever it is that people feel the need to bash on something, right? Whether that's Webpack or Angular or React or whatever it is. And I think it's about realizing we got an awesome set of tools. Use what works for you, what kind of feels good with your mindset. So for me, it's important to kind of stay agnostic for that reason To Even though I might have my roots in Angular, my roots before that was .NET. So, I mean, I don't really feel strongly rooted anywhere. So... For me, it's important to realize that there are great frameworks out there. I mean, right now I'm really enjoying Vue because it's so simple, but tomorrow it might be Svelte or whatever else, right? Uh, so don't go into Twitter you know, threads or Reddit threads or whatever it is and try to say that my framework is better than your framework because it really depends on context. And definitely people use a certain framework as a living and there's no compelling reason why you want to make them feel bad about whatever choice they're making. So that's why I'm saying the war is over if you want it. Don't even start the war. I think that's the main message because there's no war to be had. There's only, you know, great software that you use to solve problems. Definitely. I love that. That's another very philosophical perspective that could probably be bubbled up to all kinds of other, you know, wars and conflicts you see happening on Twitter and other online forums. As an advocate, it's super important for me that I don't partake in these kind of discussions. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, sometimes you end up in them whether you want to or not, right? Because it might be people on your Twitter or you're in Reddit and suddenly you see two people bickering for whatever reason. And I think it's important to ask more questions because most of the time you don't understand context. So I take pride in the fact that when a few times on Reddit, I've written a article And people have said, I don't like the article for this and that reason. And I'm like, okay, I hear what you're saying. Why don't you like it? Could you explain more to me? And then I I ask more clarifications, more questions, and I make sure that I shift the tone. I make sure to answer them in a polite way and say, how could I do this better? And then they start to shift their tone with me, right? Because people are affected by the way that you respond back. And I think that's super important. Yet You can actually change people by the way you write, and by the way you say things. And Reddit especially is one of those hit or miss places that sometimes you get tons of comments and sometimes you get nothing and sometimes positive, sometimes angry. And you don't need to be that person that kind of adds fire to gasoline. Just make sure to put <laughs> it out by understanding their situation, ask more questions about the you know, context because most of the time they're used to this tone, right? They've grown up in a generation where it's okay to talk trash over, I don't know, online gaming or whatever they got this attitude from. But I think it's our responsibility to don't don't go with that tone, shift the tone if you don't like it. Definitely. Well, so, on that positive message, I think maybe we should start wrapping up. What do you all think? 
Yeah, I think that's, yeah. A, that's a great last note. <laughs> <laughs> good high, I think, a good high point. Yes. So, Chris, where can people find you on the internet? Usually it's on Twitter under Chris underscore Noring, or um, probably my Dev2 account is like dev.2 slash soft Chris. That's where I spend most of my time writing articles. I, uh, I do have a primary blog, but in all fairness, I am still developing that using UPress. And I'm probably going to try to draw more traffic there. But I find Dev2 a very nice place to be because people are so friendly. It's everything that Reddit is not, if that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, I, so I, I just want to give a shout out to the team behind Dev2. People like Ben Halpern, for example, you know, the, the creators of this wonderful site. If you haven't seen it, check it out. People are super friendly and you get, even get unicorns when people really like your, you know, articles. <laughs> and I think that's important. Have some kind of gamification in your life. So yeah, definitely Dev2 is a place where I spend a lot of time to create content, but also partake in discussions and, and other things. Great. We'll make sure to include those in the show notes. This episode is sponsored by GitLab Commit. GitLab's inaugural user event brings together the GitLab community to connect, learn, and inspire. Speakers will showcase the power of DevOps in action through strategy and technology decisions, lessons learned, behind-the-scenes looks at the development lifecycle, and more. Learn how to innovate the future of software development by registering today. GitLab Commit Brooklyn, September 17th, and GitLab Commit London, October 9th. You can find it at devchat.tv slash GitLab Commit. All right, so it's time for us to move on to picks. Elizabeth, would you like to go first? Sure. So mine actually fits in with a little bit of our theme today, which is painting. And so my pick is Procreate. It's an app on iPad and it's amazing. So I studied drawing and painting in college. And so I've used all kinds of different, you know, oil paints and charcoal and stuff. And it's crazy how well this app recreates those mediums and lets you paint pretty accurately without having paint all over your clothes and your house. So that's my pick. (laughs) All right. And Ari, what picks you have for us today? I have two picks this week, which is up for my normal one. So my first pick is an iOS game. Sorry, Android users, this will not work for you. It's called Blackbox. (laughs) It's a puzzle game, but it's very different from any puzzle game you've tried before in that the puzzle is solved by using your phone in a very literal sense, like using the various hardware features of your phone. Yeah, it sounds super weird. It takes a little getting used to sort of wrapping your head around the fact that, uh, you know, touching the screen is not really going to do much for you unless you're touching it in ways that uh, interface with the OS itself. That's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah, so Black Fox, super fun. And my second pick is a Twitter account, DM of Engineering. It is basically a commentary uh, on software engineering from the perspective of a Dungeons and Dragons dungeon master. So it is highly entertaining and very relatable. (laughs) I don't even play Dungeons and Dragons, but it's amazing. (laughs) Like, when I first discovered the account, I, yeah, I was laughing for hours <laughs> just scrolling through. Oh, this is so, yeah. great. <laughs> right? Yeah. This is going to yeah, be my next to, hour like, now. You have to check it out. All right. And Chris, what picks do you have for us today? 
I've got two different picks. I'm thinking about one of them, whether it's appropriate or not. But so <laughs> uh, there, there's this Twitter account called Swear Trek. I don't know if you saw that, but it's like gifts oh, from Star. Yeah. Uh, I think it's from Star Trek <laughs> where people are saying stupid things, and it seems like it's really synchronizing with their mouth movements. So it seems like they're actually saying profanities. So if you have a really boring day, I kind of recommend going in there, have a good laugh. So that's my inappropriate pick. <laughs> My serious pick is Babylon.js. It is a uh, JavaScript library that makes 3D programming super simple. And they have this amazing homepage where they show off every kind of demo that you could possibly want. Everything from adding this sphere or working with uh, the keyboard or selecting stuff from the screen. It just kind of feels like you almost can be a game developer just by copy-pasting most of the sample code. So, uh, yeah, definitely Babylon.js. I mean, I have a actually a master's in game development. And I've been working with platforms that have been way harder than this. And, and it's just a joy to work with. So Babylon.js. Awesome. For this week, I have one pick. Recently, I've been really getting into this anime show called My Hero Academia. And so it's basically about this boy who is in a superhero world and doesn't have any superpowers and tries to find his way and how to become a hero. And so I usually like these sort of like, um, I see like... Uh, <laughs> The coming of age stories, just because it's a, it's a reminder. Sometimes I think as we get older, that fixed mindset of like, oh, this is like all I can ever be. And to just have that sort of youthful exuberance of like anything's possible and to sort of barrel forward um, to me is always greatly inspiring. So if you're looking for a new anime, My Hero Academia, there are three seasons on Hulu. So you don't have to even torrent it or anything. You can watch it legally. <laughs> 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 all right. With that said, does anyone have any final thoughts before we wrap up? It's been a pleasure. That's all I have to say. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been uh, super nice. Very grateful for the uh, invite from uh, you, Ben, Ari, and Elizabeth. It was uh, an amazing hour and a half, I think. (laughs) All right. Well, that is it for this episode of Views on View. Thank you for joining us. And until next week, enjoy the view. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.